this is Megan, and I'm here to talk to you about specific cases regarding the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Amendments. First up, we have the case Kansas v. Glover involving the 4th Amendment. The Kansas v. Glover case takes place one night in 2018 in the great Sunflower State of Kansas. Police officer Mark Merher decided to run a registration check on a 1995 Chevrolet pickup truck while driving down the road. Charles Glover, a local Kansas man, is driving the car. He hears the sirens and pulls over. Glover hears the police car door shut while cars drive by and he sits in his car while the police officer searches. The officer discovers that while Glover had the truck registered, his license had been revoked. So after identifying the truck driver as Glover, he was charged by the state with driving as a habitual violator. The fault in the case is that Merher only assumed Glover was driving the truck and decided to stop him, even though he did not observe any traffic violations. Glover then argues that Merher violated his Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. There was no reasonable suspicion to pull Glover over since he was not violating any traffic laws. The state of Kansas is on Officer Merher's side, arguing that an officer may infer that the owner of a vehicle is the one driving the vehicle, and the knowledge that the owner of the vehicle has a revoked license combined with the inference gives the officer a valid reason to have an investigative stop based off of suspicion. But the state trial court says that it was not reasonable for an officer to infer the registered owner of a vehicle is also the driver. The state district court grants the motion to dismiss, and the Kansas Court of Appeals reversed the district court's decision. So, Glover petitioned to the Kansas Supreme Court. The Kansas Supreme Court rejects the Court of Appeals' decision, and this leads to the Kansas state petitioning to the U.S. Supreme Court for review. The case was argued before the Supreme Court of the United States on November 4, 2019, this year. So, the appeal is still pending, but the big question of this case is, is it reasonable for an officer to suspect that the registered owner of a vehicle is the one driving the vehicle for purposes of an investigative stop or does it violate fourth amendment rights moving on to a very well-known and famous case about the fifth amendment the oj simpson trial It's 1994 in the sunny state of Los Angeles, California. The weather is warm and beautiful with the fresh June air. Everything seems just right, doesn't it? Well, things take a turn for the worse on June 12th when Nicole Brown Simpson, 
the German-American ex-wife of the retired professional football player and actor O.J. Simpson, is found stabbed to death in the front courtyard of her condo in Brentwood, California. At the same time, one of Nicole's very close friends, Ronald Goldman, a young, energetic restaurant waiter, is also found stabbed to death in the front courtyard of the condominium. Suspicious. Now, you could probably take a guess on who the first person accused of the murders were. Yep, O.J. Simpson is one of the main suspects. When the police arrive at Simpson's mansion to inform him of the deaths, they not only discover he has vanished, but also they find his blood-stained bronco and bloody glove that matches one found near Goldman's body at the crime scene. The police further search his house, and don't worry, they had a search warrant, and find more blood traces on the property. Hmm, where is OJ, one might ask? Well, shortly after the deaths, OJ takes off to Chicago on a business trip. After being notified, he returns to his beautiful Los Angeles mansion, where he's temporarily handcuffed and questioned for a very long time. The day after the victim's funerals, OJ Simpson suddenly flees and becomes a fugitive. Well, keep in mind, he originally promised to surrender to authorities, but he fleed anyways. So, picture this. On the fast-moving freeway, OJ is spotted driving with his friend Al Cowlings in his white Bronco, speeding down the highway. Fans of OJ line the side of the freeway to cheer him on with signs, like out of their car with signs cheering him while he's running away from the police. While this is all happening, helicopters are following OJ down the highway, while 95 million people watch this 60-mile chase on live TV. They're sitting on the edge of their seats in their living room watching the live broadcast. Some might have been a little mad because it did disrupt the NBA Finals broadcast, but I think this was a little more important. Simpson finally surrenders at his house at around 9 p.m. that night, and of course he is arrested and thrown in jail without bail. Of course, OJ pleads not guilty to the murder charges. Prosecution decides life without parole for the defendant if he is convicted. And luckily for Simpson, they decide to not do the death penalty. Oh, thank you. It's a big day on January 24th, 1995, when the prosecution begins with opening statements from Marcia Clark and Christopher Darden, a tag team. They made statements that OJ killed her out of jealousy and because he couldn't have her. Well, the defense, led by Johnny Cochran, gives their opening statement in return that this case is about a rush to judgment, an obsession to win at any costs. While in the middle of this very stressful and busy time, O.J. Simpson somehow finds a time and comes out with a book called 
I want to tell you my response to your letters, your messages, your questions. This book is all about his innocence, his life with Nicole Brown Simpson, his kids, the media, the judicial system, spousal abuse, religion, racism, and it was released just in time to try and help Simpson in the case to prove himself innocent. Now, throughout the prosecution, Nicole Brown Simpson's sister-in-law testifies with tears streaming down her face, talking about Simpson abusing Brown. Interesting. Also, the jurors take a trip to OJ's Rockingham home and Brown's house, the place of the crime scene, to get more in-depth on the case. Cato Kalin also took the stand and describes how he spent his evening with Simpson just hours before the murders occurred. Hmm. Moving on to May 10th, where the DNA evidence is presented, where the real fun starts. The jurors learn that 1 in 170 million people, including Simpson, would have the genetic characteristics as a drop of blood that was discovered at the crime scene. Interesting. Simpson later has to try on the black leather gloves that were found at the crime scene in front of the jury to see if they fit right. But when Simpson puts the gloves on, he says they're too tight. This is more of a side note, but it has to do with the Fifth Amendment in the case, so I thought I'd put it in. So on August 29th, tapes are released of Mark Furman, a detective on the case who was accused of tampering with the evidence and being racist. The tapes show Furman making racial slurs and bragging about his enforcement of police brutality. Mark Furman appears on stand and refuses to answer questions citing his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. About a month after Mark Furman's tapes are released, it is September 28th, and the defense presents its closing argument with the famous phrase, If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Soon after, on October 3rd, O.J. Simpson is acquitted. The jury returns with the verdict of not guilty on two accounts of murder. So, in this specific case, O.J. Simpson exercises his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, and now he's a free man. In addition, when a knife was recently found in 2016 that possibly came from O.J.'s former property, Simpson could not be brought forth on murder charges because of double jeopardy protected by the Fifth Amendment. The double jeopardy portion of the Fifth Amendment is where a person cannot be brought forth on the same charges on more than one occasion. Next, we have the case Cunningham v. California regarding the Sixth Amendment. This case takes place in California in 2006. John Cunningham, a former police officer, is on trial for sexual abuse of his young son. 
Keep in mind, under California's determinate sentencing law, the judge has a choice between three possible sentences, a minimum, medium, and maximum sentence. On this particular case, the judge decides to sentence Cunningham to the maximum 16-year sentence. The problem is that the judge made this decision by reviewing factors and evidence not reviewed by the jury. Now this violated Cunningham's Sixth Amendment rights of having the right to a judge and jury. As a result, John Cunningham appealed his sentence and argued that the judge can consider only factors determined by the jury when determining which sentence is given. The California Court of Appeal disagreed with Cunningham's appeal and kept it the same sentence as was prescribed. In addition, the California Supreme Court denied his appeal. But the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case and ruled that California's determinate sentencing laws was inconsistent with the Sixth Amendment. Next, we have Feltner v. Columbia Pictures Television Incorporated regarding the Seventh Amendment. Columbia Pictures Television Incorporated is a film company responsible for television series such as Who's the Boss, Silver Spoons, and Heart to Heart, with many more. In 1991, Columbia Pictures terminates agreements licensing several television series to three television stations owned by C. Elvin Feltner after the station's royalty payments were long overdue. Even though the agreements were terminated, Feltner's stations continued to broadcast the shows. As a result, Columbia Pictures decided to sue him for copyright infringement and won partial summary judgment on its copyright claims. They also tried to recover statutory damages under Section 504 of the Copyright Act. The District Court gives Columbia the statutory damages and a bench trial while denying Feltner's request for a jury trial. So, the question is, does Section 504 of the Copyright Act or the Seventh Amendment grant a right to a jury trial when statutory damages are elected to be recovered by the copyright owner? Well, for the U.S. Supreme Court, it was a unanimous decision that the Seventh Amendment provides the right to a jury trial even without Section 504 of the Copyright Act. The last case we're going to talk about today is Atkins versus Virginia regarding the Eighth Amendment. In 2002, Daryl Renard Atkins is convicted of abduction, armed robbery, and capital murder. In this case, the defense only relies on one witness 
a forensic psychologist who says Atkins is mildly mentally disabled. The jury sentenced him to death, but Virginia Supreme Court ordered a second sentencing hearing. In the second hearing, Atkins is again sentenced to death. The Virginia Supreme Court then rejects the claim that Atkins could not be sentenced to death because of his mental state. This leads us to the question of this case. Is the death penalty of Atkins, or any mentally disabled person, considered a cruel and unusual punishment that is prohibited under the Eighth Amendment? Well, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that executions of mentally disabled criminals are cruel and unusual punishments that do go against the Eighth Amendment. Well, that was just a quick snippet of some of the millions of court cases regarding the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Amendments. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and I hope you enjoy. Goodbye.